Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times, now with goals. Hello and welcome to The Game, the fantastic football podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti and I'm delighted this week to welcome my guests from Merseyside. It's Tony Barrett from the Great Northeast. It's George Culkin at Culkin The Times, I might add. And uh, in studio with me, once again, it's Rory K. Smith. We're going to start at the place formerly known as the City of Manchester Stadium. We're going to start with you, Tony. The scoreline six to three, which we had in other ways three nil. If it were three nil, we would say that that is very, very dominant uh, on the part of City. Did they just obliterate Arsenal, or was there a time when Arsenal were making a game of it? I don't know. There was really a time when Arsenal were making a game of it. Not much of one. There was a brief comeback threat, but you always had that feeling that Manchester City were going to go up the other end and score. There was always that feeling that. Arsenal's midfield were ill-equipped to cope with Yaya Torre and Fernandino. I watched it in the Goodison Park press room before Everton Fulham, and I was sat there with quite a few former Everton players who were quite scathing about Jack Wilshere's performance and the fact that he was basically doing nothing to stop Manchester City playing, and a couple of get go, a couple of City's goals come via that source, via that one weakness. And I, I, just, I just think it's increasingly telling with Arsenal that the thing, the kind of strengths that they do have are also weaknesses. Ramsey, Wilshere, great on the ball, but what you do when you go to a place like Manchester City and you're going to have to stop the other team playing? Arsenal do not have enough players, enough defensive solidity to stop that from happening. And I, I just thought of all the results of the weekend, that one was the biggest foregone conclusion. George, it's your argument about defensive solidity in Arsenal, and the minute somebody comes out and talks about it and says, look, they've got all these little pretty players, so, so they're wussy, blah, 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 then Arsenal fans rightly come out and point to their defensive record, which is, uh, which is stellar. Do you buy Tony's argument that, that, that Arsenal are somehow incomplete when, when, when they don't have, because they necessarily don't have that, that, that muscle in the middle of the park? Is that a requirement in the modern game? Well, I, th- I would I would say that kind of every every team at the top of the division is incomplete in some way. Man City have been absolutely brilliant at home, and yet I think only Newcastle in the top ten have got a worse record away from home. So, yeah, but they, City you know, played Arsenal, well away from home, though they deserve to win like two or three of them 
Yeah, but they, but they, but they, you know, but they haven't. I mean, they're 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 very much the team. You know, they're very much the team in form, and they look. You know, they have that they have that feeling of irrepressibility about them. But then then again, so did Arsenal not too long ago. Um, I just don't think there's a complete team out there. I think City are the closest thing to it. Um, you know, the, that 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 failure at Arsenal is something that's been that's been talked about for a long time now. And I mean, I I think I do I do agree as a general principle. However. You know, certainly for the for for the season up till up till the weekend, they've they've made a pretty good fist of, you know, posing a counter argument. You, do you know what that, that thing about the defensive record is really interesting? Is there was a point at which Arsenal had the second best defensive record in the Premier League, and and whenever you sort of said, said that maybe Arsenal weren't quite perfect, kind of going backwards rather than going forwards, and that which they're not, they're not as George says, they're not a perfect team, but that isn't a a prerequisite for winning the lead this year. No one is perfect. Everyone is flawed. The question is who has the least flaws or the fewest flaws. But whenever you said, oh, you know, Arsenal, Mertesacker and Chelsea maybe aren't, the, wouldn't be your first choice defensive partnership if you looked all over the world for the, the best central defenders, they probably wouldn't be your first two. And all these Arsenal fans would go, well, we've got the best, the second best defensive record in the league. You don't get that with, with a pair of Muppets. And you'd say, well, the, the best defensive record in the Premier League belongs to Jose Font and Dejan Lovren. Does that mean that they're the best defenders in the world? It doesn't. It just kind of means that sometimes statistics are slightly misleading. Mertesacker and Chelsea are a good pair they're better than Arsenal have had before and Arsenal are more solid but that doesn't mean that they are as solid as they maybe need to be it's not that I don't think Arsenal are not fit for purpose of challenging for the title or, or finishing in the top four I just don't think they are fit for the purpose the very unique purpose of facing a Manchester City side who are rampant at home I think their weaknesses will be exposed in that one game I was one of those people who picked City to, to, to win the title I wasn't quite sure the more I watched them I, I get more sure um, given that they have loads of South American players and uh, um, a very glamorous uh, for his age in a stately way older um, uh, Chilean manager I'm assuming you agree with me yes Roy that I, I think they're the as George says I think they are probably the best team they're, they look to me to be the least flawed team in the Premier League but I saw them at Southampton eight days ago and they look. That, I mean, Southampton are a good side, and there's no great shame in getting a point at Southampton. But they, for the last hour, they wiped the floor with City. To be perfectly honest, so City, City aren't perfect either. There is this sort of weird kind of quandary over quite why they are so different away from home to how they are at home. They aren't as bad at away as their record suggests, but they're not as good as they are at home. And that the, the difference is so stark that you you do kind of question it. But yeah, I think that the number of goals they've got in them suggests that they are probably the they probably should be favourites because they are scoring so many goals. But then Sergio Aguero's out for six weeks, and that's that's not great. Yeah, how I, do you I, deal I with thought, that? Sorry, I was I was just going to say I saw them lose one 0 at, at Sunderland, and um, you know they had they had a whole host of chances that day. But equally, at the end of it, Pellegrini said, uh, you know, if we continue to play like that away from home we won't win the title since then they've been I mean they've been brilliant apart from that Southampton game that that Rory talks about they're definitely the informed team but I do think there's I do think there's an, there's an issue there there has to be how do you deal with Aguero out for six weeks well we can we, can we obviously he's got a whole raft of uh, if only they had a 35 million or 30 million pound Montenegro international on the bench That'd be really useful at a time like this, wouldn't it? They also have a very pricey Bosnian international on the they bench. They do, although well. Aduero is kind of their talisman, and I think that they will notice his absence. But I just think when you've got Jovetic and Jeko to complement Nedredo, it's not that much of a disaster. But it is a it's a it's a bit of a setback. Is that what you they, were... they scored four goals without him, didn't they? Yesterday after he after he went off. So I mean, they've just got they've got so much talent all over the attacking talent all over the 
uh, all over the pitch. It's an opportunity for somebody to come in and, you know, uh, or others to come in and, and deputise for him. I would be worried, yes, because uh, uh, he is such a magical player, but at the same time, other teams are losing important players too. We need to discuss Spurs and Liverpool. Liverpool had a rotten record at White Hart Lane. They win 5-0. They do it without... Stephen Jarrett and Daniel Sturridge, in fact, I don't think anybody saw it coming. A lot of people beforehand thought that, you know, the Spurs' crisis was over and Liverpool, without those players, maybe would have had an excuse to settle for a point. I didn't see it coming as, as such, but I do think Liverpool's ability to score lots of goals when they play very well has, been, has not been respected as much as it should do. If Liverpool play well against any side on any given day, with Luis Suarez up front, they can have that kind of day where they will score four or five. And as bad as Tottenham were, that was the most complete performance. Stephen Gerrard made the point. It was the most complete performance that Liverpool have enjoyed under Brendan Rodgers. But it has been coming. If you take the whole game out, I know you can't just pick a game out. If you take that game out and you look at the build-up to Tottenham, you will see certain things coming together. And I think one of them, and I, I think this has been overlooked, is Daniel Sturridge going out to the side. I think Liverpool look more completely, look stronger in midfield. They they have more options, they have more men coming into attack. And I just think that Tottenham were in the wrong place at the wrong time because this performance was coming. I think the element of surprise is that it was at White Hart Lane, a place where Liverpool have had an abysmal record. Um, our boss, Tony Evans, suggests that you know maybe without Gerrard, Liverpool are better. I'm judging from, I guess from what Tony says, he doesn't necessarily buy that. I personally feel that. If Jared had been in there against that absurdly high line and um, Spurs undermanned and playing so badly, I think he might have done rather well. Where do you stand, Roy? I think you might be right on that on that instance. I I do think it's very difficult because it is Steven Gerrard and he does inspire such loyalty and such devotion and he deserves so much respect for everything that he's done. But as, as Tony Evans writes, there comes a point with every great player where they, they pass... They, they pass their moment. And I think the issue with Gerrard, from what I've seen of Liverpool this season, is that when he plays, obviously his passing's wonderful, his reading of the game's improved vastly. In a sense, he's a, he, he himself is a better footballer now than he certainly has been the last two or three years. And also, he's a better footballer than maybe you expected him to be as he aged, as he was always about dynamism and power and all that. So on an in- individual level, he doesn't deserve any criticism particularly. But the style of play that Rodgers wants is probably better suited to a midfield of Allen and Henderson with Lucas kind of sitting behind them. None of those players are in any way fit to lace Gerrard's boots, but to play that pressing game, to kind of disrupt an opponent's rhythm, you need energy and you need vim and vigour. And Gerrard, simply because of age, not any lack of ability, doesn't have that. And when he plays, Liverpool are quite easy to pass around. Yesterday, look at the number of goals, the number of chances they got. Basically, just Allen and Henderson just hounded Spurs out of possession. That's what Rogers wants. That's what the whole thing rests on. I would like to just say a word about Jordan Henderson as well. Obviously, I saw saw a fair bit of him at Sunderland, and it was just great to see, uh, great to see him play in the in, in the manner he did. There were times at Sunderland where uh, you would actually wonder what the point of him was, um, in the sense that he would be uh, he would be very athletic, and that was that was just about it. He didn't score goals. He didn't make tackles. His passing wasn't great, um, and then. There were also days like yesterday, although you know perhaps not as many, uh, when you would look at him and think that he had everything. He is he is a genuinely uh, lovely 
lad who who deserves good things because he works extremely hard and he's desperate to improve. But I just thought I thought it was a, it was a fabulous performance from him yesterday in that kind of form. You know, Liverpool wouldn't have anything to worry about. The problem with Henderson, of course, uh, and indeed with the others, is is consistency. You wonder whether the solution in most normal cases would be to play Gerard in certain games that suit him, that he becomes another kind of. Not another option, he'll, he'll always be more than that to Liverpool, obviously, but you don't necessarily... There are games when maybe you don't need Gerrard as much. The issue is whether you you have a manager or whether any manager is strong enough to do that, and that's not a criticism of Rodgers. That always happens whenever you have a player of that iconic status. I think you play Gerrard every game that he's fit and he can play and you find a way to base yourself around it. For another reason, too, which leads me to my next question, uh, not only the fact that Gerrard is... I think Liverpool's most talented player, except for Luis Suarez. But on the point of Suarez, he's like on his way to, if you project his goal numbers out, he's going to break every record. I think he's clearly the outstanding player in the Premier League this season. There's still the issue of whether he will be a Liverpool player uh, and for how long. Anybody want to say there's less than 100% chance that he will be at Liverpool uh, next season or even after January? Tony, you can take that poison chalice. He'll, he'll still be there after January. I think, I think the summer's a different issue. But if Liverpool get top four, that would change it again. It's, I think at the moment, I, if I was to put money on it, I would put money on him leaving because I think that's what way it's been heading for, for two years, not just last summer. I think it's been heading that way for some time. Uh, and I do think it's a case of enjoying while he's here. I'm, I'm still waiting for the first. Someone will inevitably say, so why I can't support Lewis Suarez for fo- football of the year, even though he is clearly the outstanding talent in, the, in this country, and that will make him a target in the summer for, for Real Madrid, who are crying out for that kind of talent, obviously, as they only have Ronaldo and Gareth Bale. It's just not enough, is it? It's not enough. No. <laughs> Tony, do you think that if, if they do get top four, do you think that, that changes his mind enough to, to stay? I think I think something that should be taken into account is how settled he is on this, how happy he is here, despite some of the nonsense he came out with in the summer. He is very happy here, he has a lot of friends here, and he's comfortable at the club. I still think he'll go. I think if they got four for them, there'd be enough. But I think if it was a strong top three finish, and Liverpool were safe into the Champions League, that could influence his thinking. But then if Real Madrid came in, I think that would all be blown out the water. So while you guys are prattling on about Suarez and Gerrard and all this stuff, Rory, I have some breaking news because, yes, uh, as we're taping this uh, uh, podcast, some of us like to uh, stay on top of the news. I'm sure Tony's on top as well. AVB, appropriately enough, is no longer the Tottenham manager. There's a statement on uh, the Spurs website, I have to say. I did not see this coming. I was told last night that it would be unlikely that he would go today. By the same token, though, he is a rather volatile gentleman. Um, so I wonder if something uh, happened this morning. Tony, right decision? I don't think so. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a bit like Rory. I'm, I'm an admirer of AB, AVB. I think I think he's a little bit odd, and I, I tend to be drawn to odd people again, as Rory would know. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't get the logic of this from start to finish. The Tottenham sell their best player. They then spend ridiculous amount of money on players. They then get to December, they're ahead of Manchester United in the league. I know that the result against Liverpool was catastrophic, as was the one against Manchester City. And I, I think you can ill afford one of those results this season, never mind two. But I think you have to view it in the context of a manager who is still trying to put a team together with the various individuals who were brought in the summer. I don't think anyone expected Tottenham to be firing all cylinders on this stage. And even if they had a long way off that, I still think this is very, very knee-jerk to what was, a, again, a catastrophic result. I thought Spurs generally played well this season. When they played badly, they played really, really badly. 
obviously this was one of those games. They had a whole bunch of players they were looking to integrate. And again, you can ask questions about, you know, is it necessary to see Lewis Holtby again when you've brought in other guys who are probably better than he is? But that said, I, I'm, I'm led to believe that some of the concerns to do with the fact that AVB was having, had, had some issues obviously with the medical staff and that he was having some issues with uh, some other elements within the club and perhaps there was a fear from the top that he wasn't dealing with them in the best possible way. Is AVB a very, very talented guy who maybe when the going gets rough, maybe because he doesn't have that much experience, doesn't know how to ride out the storm in the best possible way? Yeah, possibly. That you, that looks like it might be the kind of, the, the simplest way of, of kind of capturing it. I think I think he's a good manager. I think he's, he is flawed. He's not perfect. He's a bit bookish. He's a bit kind of, he seems a bit detached from it. And there were certainly times at Chelsea and I think early on at Spurs where he he fails maybe to connect with the players on a human level. He He's very kind of machinistic and automated almost in the way he manages. But I don't think sacking him now makes any sense at all. I don't I don't understand. I think you kind of have to look at it surely as a club and think, right, who can we who can we get? What's better than our current situation? Because yeah, right. So, so they don't get battered at City, then they kind of turn it around a bit. They get a couple of better, much better results. Then they lose badly to Liverpool. As, you, as as Jab says, they they kind of they made bad decisions, but in terms of personnel, in terms of tactics, but there were certain mitigating mitigating circumstances. So fine, you then go and decide to sack the manager, which seems to be a relatively short term decision. As, as as Jab says, the information as of last night was that there wasn't any real appetite for it. I got told a week ago, week or so ago that they were thinking about potential alternatives, but there w- wasn't really anyone they were desperately certain about. So what happens now? Do you go and get a caretaker in for nine months? Is that going to get you in the Champions League? Who do you get if you want a kind of long-term appointment now? Who's available? What, Loudrup, Pochettino, someone like that? Is that, is that any better of a bet? I don't know. I just, it just looks to me like almost like this is the bad old Tottenham ret- returning where a few bad things happen and they decide, right, we have to act rather than taking the considered long-term view, which they've done really well for two or three years, to be honest. Looking at the upcoming fixtures, they have Southampton away, which potentially could be a trap game, although if you look at the way Tottenham play, you look at the way Southampton play, I think it would actually be a very good opponent for Spurs to face. Uh, then it's West Brom and Stoke at home. Um, and, and before you, you know, in the lead up to, to uh, United on, on New Year's Day. So it seems, it, it certainly seems unusual at this stage. Uh, Tony, in your experience, how often does it happen? Is it plausible that overnight or somebody's opinion changes or perhaps it changes as a result of, um, you know, a face-to-face meeting with the manager in the morning where something happens? Yeah, I think I, I think it has happened. I think it's happened. That, I know it was, in the, it was Wigan Athletic in the Championship, but I think it happened with Dave Whelan and Owen Coyle recently where it was a meeting after a defeat and, and they, it became clear to, to both of them that it just wasn't working. And Dave Whelan said he had no plans to sack him, but in that meeting he just realised he couldn't work with him. So I do think thing, things do come to a head. I'm just wondering if, if this is a case of Daniel Levy trying to make history repeat itself and he's going back to the decision to, to replace Juan de Ramos uh, with Harry Redknapp and, and the, the difference that that made to Tottenham and their aspirations for that season. He's trying to repeat that trick. And I also wonder if it's this, this is just the, the effect of the Champions League, if they need to be in that top four. Tottenham would have expected to be in there with the, with the kind of outlay. I know it was money that Delazi brought in through Bale, but Tottenham expect to be in that top four and need to be in that top four. And if they're wondering whether it's going to take longer, even longer than expected under the VS Bowers, can someone can someone hurry that process along? 
and that's why they made the change. So it's, I think it's an accumulation of things. And I think one of the things will also be the fact that AVB basically has no friends in the media, and although that shouldn't count, I think it does. Roy, you mentioned it, that, that AVB didn't have any friends in the media. Then again, I, I don't only met Levy once, I think. I don't know the guy um, as well as you do, obviously. Does he strike you as somebody who's, who would change his mind based on the, no, I don't, the I perception? Don't, so I don't think he'd make a decision just because... Viaspos was unpopular, I th- but I do think there is a. I think Viaspos is right. I don't know. And, if and, and sorry, sorry, just to complete the question, you said they, they need to get into the Champions League. Well, it would strike me that obviously every club wants to get mm. into the Champions League, but this is a club they've just made a profit in the transfer window. I believe their wage bill is the sixth highest or fifth or sixth highest, and they're a profitable club already uh, without Champions League football. Why do they need to get into the top four. I'm not sure I said they need to, but that's certainly what they want to achieve. And I think given the outlay in the summer, they'd, they'd probably see that as being kind of the, the requirement. No, I could see it being the minimum objective. But no, I don't... It's, I don't, it's not, I, it's not like I don't think financially they need right. to, but in the same way as, as maybe other clubs need to get in the Champions League. What I would say about Levy, and I, I don't think there's an agenda against Fiaspo, so I don't think there ever has been, but I think he is so other to what we expect from English football that every time he fails or does something wrong, that is interpreted through his otherness. And we've seen that with other foreign managers, that managers who kind of fit our paradigm, whether they're British or foreign, so Mourinho is a very English-style manager. He's Portuguese, but he's very English-style. So when he fails, it's for various other reasons. When Vias Boas fails, or someone like Juan de Ramos, it's because of their otherness, and that's the problem. Right. I, I can't see that influence in Levy as much as, as you mentioned earlier, the clashes with the medical staff, the suspicion that the players didn't particularly like him, the the tensions in his relationship with Baldini, who by all accounts wasn't desperately convinced by Villas-Boas once he got into the club. I think those are all more likely factors than the fact that that the press generally is a bit suspicious of someone like Villas-Boas, who is so different to what we normally expect. Tony, I'm going to give you the last word on this because I, I'm just I'm fascinated. We could have a whole discussion about this by uh, uh, Rory's uh, concept of, of otherness and uh, what's different. I mean, you could obviously make a case that Arsene Wenger is the other. Some people have said Mark Hughes is the other in the sense that, you know, more of a, of a loner type. Martin O'Neill certainly strikes me the way he speaks as the other from a lot of uh, run-of-the-mill managers. Do you buy this, this concept? I do. I've... Um, I think I've seen in, in action, I think I've seen managers whose tactics uh, are different at the time and are new at the time and pilloried for them. And within four or five years, all managers in the league are doing it and it becomes the norm. And it's never said that the manager who brought these in were trailblazers or or it's rarely said. I think Wenger is the exception that proves the rule because I don't think any others get the benefit of the doubt like he, he has done. Uh, I think t- things like, and, and I don't want to name the manager because... As Matt Dickinson rightly says, all internet debates dissolve down to this issue, but issues things like rotation and zonal marking, which were an absolute no-no in 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, are now done as a massive course by all the top clubs. Um, I, I, th- I think we are reluctant to, to cultural change. I think we are reluctant to that. those manage- managers who do come in with new ideas. I think we do struggle with managers who are a bit odd in press conferences, who do things differently, who, who tell stories and, and, and aren't the nice kind of English or British do-knock-about stuff. I think there's all those elements that go into it. And I, but I think this is just a process that English football is going to have to go through. I'd imagine that, I mean, Gab, you will know better than me and Rory, obviously, but I would imagine that Italian football will have went through a similar process 
in the eighties when the Germans and Dutch started playing in in Serie A. I don't know, but it, I, I would imagine that is just the cultural change that that countries and leagues go through, and it's adapting to the other. You do wonder. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. With, with AVB on a personal level, and I mean, I, I wouldn't claim to know him particularly well, but I, I've met him more than six times. And he's, an, he's a nice enough fella. He's more than a, seven? A seven or eight. He's he's a, he's a nice enough bloke. He's he's a little bit cold, but he's quite funny and he's quite he's quite nice. But you do, you you do wonder whether he'll look back on his career. He always said that he wanted to work in like Chile and Argentina, and he he was one of those managers. Just, and I suspect it's because he's got quite a middle class upbringing that he didn't see. He saw football management as a way of living the life he wanted, rather than football management being the life that he wanted. It was a way to kind of enable him to do lots of different things, and I thought that was quite nice. But you do wonder whether now he'll look back on it and think that the biggest mistake he made was leaving Porto for Chelsea. Because he was very, very unwilling to make that, make that leap. He wanted to stay at Porto. He initially, all the noises that Chelsea got initially were that he wanted another year at Porto to see where he could take the club. And you do wonder how, how differently his career might have turned out had he remained in that relatively stable and comfortable environment for another year or two before he kind of made the move abroad. All right, moving on to our debate this week. And as we love to do, um, traditionally, we uh, debate managers who have left us. And, um, and we'll be getting to that in a minute. But first, I wanted to, to talk about this story, which really made the rounds worldwide on the web extremely, extremely quickly. And I, I, it's awesome that George is here because uh, it's, uh, it's a Northeast-based story. And a story appeared um, and really propagated itself very, very quickly via social media, um, that Newcastle, uh, the story appeared in the, the local newspaper, or one of the three local newspapers, as I am led to believe, uh, the Newcastle Chronicle. The story was that the club were going to charge for uh, media for exclusive access to their players. Now, in this country, there are newspapers who pay to interview players. Uh, it's a sad fact. But 
I think this would have been unprecedented, uh, a club sort of systematically charging media, having different packages and stuff for, for, for this kind of content. Now, the thing about the story is that it's not quite accurate, is it, George? Well, the thing, the thing to point out right from the start is that Newcastle insists that this isn't a something that's set in stone. And the idea that newspapers have actually been offered packages, there was talk of kind of gold, silver, bronze levels of access to the club is not true. However, um, I mean, it's, it's, it is important to say that, but it's also uh, absolutely correct to say that this is something that Mike Ashley has wanted to do for a long time. He can't understand why newspapers don't pay for access. I'm pretty sure that it's something that's been brought up at Premier League meetings before by Newcastle. There hasn't been sort of any will from other clubs or from, you know, obviously from a majority of other clubs for that to happen. But it's certainly an aspiration that Mike Ashley has. Tony, I I can't help but ask you the first thought um, I I had at the time is that it kind of reminded me a little bit of when football clubs first started having their own websites. And a lot of people were saying like, oh, well, you know, this way they'll be able to cut out the middleman of the media and since everybody's dying to speak to their players, they'll just have them and then sell loads of advertising and subscriptions around them and they'll drive the traditional media bus. Now, it hasn't quite happened that way, uh, not yet anyway, and certainly not because of football clubs. I can't help but wonder if, if this content, if this exclusive access to Newcastle players is so valuable, why doesn't Mike Ashley simply publish it himself via one of his media and he can get his company to go and, uh, and sponsor it? No, I think that's a good point. But just to take this, to take the devil's advocate role and what the clubs are thinking, because Newcastle aren't alone in this. I know of at least one other club owner who toured the stadium that they just bought. And when they saw the press box, they asked why the press didn't pay to sit in such such perfect viewing positions. And that attitude, I think, is becoming increasingly prevalent. But just to be devil's advocate... Why would the clubs not charge for content when newspapers charge for content themselves? Isn't that what capitalism is? Isn't the idea that they give us access and the newspaper industry makes money? If you are a capitalistic organisation, wouldn't you think that you should get your cut? That isn't that very, very basic capitalism. It is, but and I, I, I talked about this on Twitter and got, got a really sort of interesting range of views, as you always do on Twitter, most of which involve people swearing at me. Some, a lot of people were kind of saw it as being really craven and venal, and Newcastle kind of chanting their arm a little bit. But a lot of others made that point that that we essentially, as as, as the media, make money off of the clubs that, that they sell our newspapers for us, and that's absolutely true. But the swap is that we put their players in the newspaper, accompanied by massive pictures of the of the club shirt with the logo on it that they pay for for advertising, and so it is it is capitalistic, but it's also it's almost like a, a like a trade economy. We already pay anyway, in a sense, because any time we, we run an interview which is on the basis of we promote a certain brand uh, computer game or whatever, and you get an interview, you are, in effect, paying because you are giving over advertising space. You are, but even... even and th- So when Gab says that there are papers that pay for interviews, there are. That some of the tabloids will pay for interviews. They don't pay the clubs. They pay agents or middlemen. I've never been entirely, entirely certain how much of that money the, the players ever see, to be perfectly honest. And, e- and then you do get the interviews with, with paid sponsorship, so it's whether it's Xbox this or... PS4 that or whatever that's a much more kind of blatant example but even if you go to a club and interview say Joe Allen Tony as you did wonderfully this weekend 
that was accompanied by a picture of Joe Allen in his Liverpool shirt with Standard Chartered written on it. Now, Standard Chartered have a department that analyses how much their advertising deal with Liverpool is worth, how much to pay for that shirt sponsorship, based on number of appearances in, in, in newspapers and magazines. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's... I mean, I spoke to somebody at a different club about this when this kind of story first broke, and I mean, the, the figures are very difficult to kind of quantify uh, exa- precisely, but, you know, they, they rated that... Um, in terms of what companies get back in terms of sort of quote unquote free advertising it's something like ten, 10 times what they what they pay so there's that relationship you know that relationship has always been there i know from mike ashley's perspective he he sort of you know his his view seems to be that you know if one of his players are interviewed in the paper that's usually uh, in his players' interests, you know, whether it's to get a new contract or to get a move elsewhere, or uh, and then kind of when Newcastle feature in newspapers, by and large, it's it's negative. Now, you can argue. I mean, I would dispute that certainly over the over the two years prior to prior to this summer when things took a took a dip again uh, and kind of veered towards veered towards fast again. But um, you know, he doesn't like newspapers and he doesn't understand just the basic concept of if TV and radio have to pay for access, you know, why don't we? Uh, Steve Clark is no longer a uh, uh, manager of West Brom. Um, I have to say, I, I was watching the box and he sounded like, you know, he, he was sort of, he gave his post-match comments, blah, blah, blah. He did not look to me, I mean, he seemed sort of slightly dour and humorless, but um, that's generally his, his status quo. But um, he did not look to me like a person who was expecting to be to be let go at all. Tony, given that there's a track record there that's not bad, and I think they finished eighth last season, uh, are you a bit surprised that they acted so quickly? Well, I think everyone was. I don't think anyone saw it coming. Uh, a few weeks earlier, West Brom win at Old Trafford. They had a bad decision away from winning at Stamford Bridge. Uh, I, I did have four consecutive losses, but you look at that and think, is that how long term is that? What's what that going to mean? This just means Steve Clark's got to change a t- few things around. I, 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 I just don't see it. West Brom have done this before, though, and have, and have flourished on the back of it. But my concern for them is they did that when Dan Ashworth was in charge, and I'm just wondering whether that is the trick that everyone's missing. That everyone looks at the coach when the structure means that he isn't exactly responsible for a lot of things that happen. He, for example, wasn't the one who failed to conclude a deal with Romelu Lukaku's people in the summer. He wasn't the one who decided to pay £6 million for Victor Anachibi's results, which for me is one of the worst signings I've ever seen as someone who has who sat through many, many Anachibi performances. Steve Clark is paying the price for other people's mistakes. Cast- Castorino says in the paper today, and he, it's a good point, that the problem that West Brom have got is that their entire structure is set up to make the manager not very important. And that, that will make it hard, as people realise that, that will make it hard to attract coaches. And in that sense, Clark was perfect for them, because Clark isn't really suited to being a manager. Is that, I mean, Tony, you work with him on Merseyside. That, I think that's probably fair from my experience of him, that he's a, he's a brilliant coach, but you wouldn't necessarily see him as like a proper kind of old-school English manager, would you? No, you wouldn't. Scottish, and, and when Bradley Spears took over, the, 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 the most striking thing of all was whenever he spoke to the players, they raved about Steve Clark, they worked about, raved about the work he did on the training pitch, and I know, I know similar to Chelsea. And, and if you look at Liverpool's defence, the way it was set up then, it was it, 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 this was defence that hasn't couldn't work since then and didn't work before then under Steve Clark it worked. So he, he does have value as a coach. The problem is he's he, he's in a position now where he's sort of a manager but isn't a manager. 
And I just think that halfway house hasn't really suited anyone. And as I say, my big thing is that Richie Gala comes in, replaces Dan Ashworth. He, he's done the transfer dealings in the summer. And if there's if there's one big reason why West Brom have not done as well this season as they did last, it's it's the transfer market. That's an interesting point because obviously West Brom have what y'all like to call a continental structure. I think uh, with uh, you know a manager whose focus is primarily on coaching the first team and uh, a director of football. And incidentally, I was just thinking, obviously, it's the same structure Newcastle have as well. Uh, I'm wondering if the balance has tipped and we've gone past 50% in the, in the Premier League. But obviously, Ashworth was highly respected, and that was why they went through a lot of managers very quickly. And, you know, they seem to not miss a beat at, uh, at West Brom. Do we know anything about Richard Garlick? Has anybody ever met him? Um, I, I, it says in Ollie Kay's piece, and he generally knows, that he used to be the club's legal director and club secretary. So... I guess that means he's a lawyer, which instantly makes him most likely a bad person with a dark heart. But do, do we know anything about him? I, I don't particularly. I, I, I'm not sure he's got a, a, a football background. That shouldn't necessarily be a, a good thing or a bad okay, thing. Anybody here know Richard Garlick? No, he's younger than me, which is awesome. No. Bad thing. He's younger than you. What is he, 26, 27? 36. All right. I think he played for Robin when he was younger, and I am just on Google. <laughs> so there you go. So he does have a football background. So he does have a football background. background. I mean, he has a Wikipedia page. You, you mentioned Newcastle Garvey. It's also the same as you know as what Sunderland have been doing. I mean, and it's incre- It's you know, it's a similar setup to to Tottenham as well. You know, it's increasingly prevalent in the Premier League. And I mean, I know it's it's an easy thing to say, but you know, not wishing to kind of generalise too much. It's absolutely dependent on having the right people in those in those places. It's fine to set up a system. Uh, and it's fine to want that system to sort of last beyond individuals, whether they're managers or players or whatever. But it 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 is dependent on having the right people in those in those positions, and it can go very it can go very wrong if they're not. George makes it sound a bit like cystitis, increasingly prevalent in the Premier League. All these people sort of going, yeah, we've, we've, I'm really sorry, but we've we've got a technical director. We can't get rid of it. No, I didn't mean to do that. I was just <laughs> saying I was I was merely pointing I was merely pointing out yeah, exactly. It's, it's, Lots it's, of cranberry juice that sort you out, get rid of your technical director. I <laughs> I think Gab, you're not not only are you right. I suspect there are more than it's more than fifty percent who were called technical directors, I think it's 100% who have someone fulfilling that role. And the weird way that we approach it is ridiculous. People yearn for the days at Liverpool when Peter Robinson was the chief exec, and you read all these pieces saying, what Rogers needs is a strong chief executive like Peter Robinson. Peter Robinson was a de facto technical director. Who has written that? He was one person who wrote that. I don't want to name him. Oh, come on. Come on, come on, come on, come on. It's come not on, fair. Come on, it's not fair. Is it Barrett? No, Cross is not Barrett. He's not listening. Cross is not Barrett. No, but Liverpool, I think that, again, that, and that, that was a myth that the Liverpool of, of the 70s and 80s had a setup similar to the one they have now, and, and I think a lot of this is blinded by science. Liverpool had Tom Saunders, Ruben Bennett, Jeff Twentyman, scouts who would tell the manager which players they were signing. Hey. That was, and Peter Robinson would, would do the deal. Sort of negotiate. We, that was how, and Liverpool have the same system now. Hey. And I just think that a lot of this is, is we're, people we're, reinventing we're, the wheel. How did I know that with two Liverpool fans here, we would digress no, 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 back but, towards Liverpool? But Gab, That's we're not, not the point. I, Gab, I, we're not digressing. We're, no. we're saying that. What will happen is there will be this focus on, on the structure at West Brom and this idea that it's an incredibly different club and is, does this work? It'll be the same with Villas-Boas and Baldini. And it's not a new thing, it's just a different name. No. And whether you see that as what, as what Barrett's saying is blinded by science or whether it's just sort of slightly modern Jardinese, it, it's not a new concept. No, the problem that West Brom have got is that Richard Garlick, who's doing it now, doesn't seem to be as good at it as Dan Ashworth. And that's what George is right. If you've got the right people, it works. It's the same with any system. Yeah. All right, time now for some quick hits. Everton rolled to a 4-1 win over Fulham in our fifth. Just four points off the top. 
Tony, you love bigging up the toffees. So let me ask you, what needs to happen for Roberto Martinez to be managing in the Champions League next year? The thing about Saturday, and this, this is where I think we're seeing a real difference from Martinez. In the past, when Everton were to score three, four goals, they had to play outstandingly well. On Saturday, they didn't do that. They basically played in second gear throughout, and when they needed to score goals, they did. They've now got attack and threat from both full-back positions. They've got it from all midfield positions, and, and they do look a team that is equipped to, to last a distance. They do have weaknesses in the squad, but not terribly many. The, the big wonder would be what happens if, if Lukaku gets injured and Jelovic has to come in. I think then you would see a difference, but at the moment, Lukaku is going strong. Okay. And I see I... no reason why Everton will not be challenging for the top four place. Cheers for that, Tony, and thank you for not rising to the bait as well of saying that uh, Roberto Martinez wants to play in the Champions League, he has to move to a different club. Chelsea huff and puff and eventually beat Crystal Palace 2-1. Mourinho says this is a team in transition uh, after uh, Rory's mate, uh, Rafa Benitez, did nothing with it in the second half of the season, and that may explain why they simply aren't playing well. But, Rory, they're two points off the top, so does this mean when they do click, they'll just coast to the title and... You can look at it two ways, don't you? You can either say that they that this is the best that it's going to get, and they're kind of they're higher than they should be, or you can say that they're not playing very well, and when they click, they will become a genuine force. I'm not quite sure which one it is, to be honest. I think Mourinho's thing about Benitez and putting bias as aside as possible is complete and utter hogwash. <laughs> what on earth is a man who's got no control of the tra- in the transfer market meant to do in one transfer? You know, sign, sign a load of kids. It's ridiculous. But that said, I think Mourinho's got a point that no one has thought about the future at Chelsea and at some point that is going to come home to roost. I was at that game. Chelsea were absolutely shocking and Palace were terrible as well. Seriously, the argument to like reduce the Premier League to 60 clubs, right there. <laughs> Newcastle and Southampton share the spoils. George, who impressed you more and who has the brighter future? They both impressed me, but in different ways. Southampton had a lot of uh, possession, looked very good on the ball. Newcastle were perhaps more penetrating. Southampton looked like a team who haven't you know, won a game for a few matches and Newcastle looked like they had a lot of momentum. You would, in, that, in those circumstances, you would say that they've got the brighter future. However, if you're a Newcastle fan, you know that something is just lurking around the corner. Danny Welbeck slots into the centre-forward role and scores twice as uh, Aston Villa are dispatched 3-0. Tony, with uh, Robin Van Persie out until January, uh, might he be the answer up front? I don't think so long-term. I'm not a particular fan of Welbeck, I've got to be honest, and I think replacing Van Persie is is much too much for him. I also don't think he'll play against a defence which features a left-back who goes missing the entire game. I, I think Welbeck will fill in. I think he'll do a job. I don't think he'll do it anywhere near well as Van Persie, but then who could? Swansea are held at Norwich, 1-1. They have a fancy foreign coach, um, but while they're in 10th place, they've actually lost more than they've won, and this is after Laudrup bought in a whole gang of new players in the summer. I'm starting to wonder if he's all he's cracked up to be. Should I, should I be having doubts here? Should, my faith, should I allow my faith to be shaken like this? I think you should always allow your faith to be shaken, Gab. It's part of existence. Um, I was in St. Gallen with Swansea, where they were terrible. On Thursday night, it was really cold. And that may have impaired my judgment. But the view among several of the sort of people around Swansea is that, that there's a chance that the Valencia win was kind of the high point of the whole kind of Laudrup thing and that they might struggle to, to match not only what they achieved last season, but kind of that, that momentum always has to, it was always going to stop at some point. And they're now, yeah, they're now a mid-table Premier League side. Because the fans have got used to constantly moving forward, you wonder whether they might not react that well to that. I think there's problems with some of the players that, that there's a suspicion that Laudrup isn't quite as as focused and as intense as, as he might be. There's a lot of the players are very loyal to him and some of the players aren't that loyal to him. 
all isn't rosy in the garden, and that's, that's kind of been covered up by the, the romance of the Swansea story. And it still is a really romantic, lovely story, kind of feel-good fairy tale type thing. But great stories always come to an end, I suspect. I don't think Loudrup will be there this time next year, and that might be a good thing. Sunderland are still bottom, but they emerge unscathed from the trip to West Ham. George, are you growing more optimistic about Poet's chances of keeping them up? No. Um, no, they've got nine <laughs> points. They're bottom of the table. Um, yes, I think they did They did pretty well, by all accounts, at, at West Ham, but it's not, uh, it's not positive they need its, its victories. They target to win. The one thing they've got going in their favour is that, remarkably, they're not adrift. They're still only five points away from safety, but uh, to counter that, they're not winning games of football, which would seem to be quite important. Gab, the Champions League draw has just happened. Let's work through the eight games and see what you, what you think is interesting. So let's start with the English clubs, because that's what the parochial people will want. And the Premier League is the best in the world. Barcelona versus Manchester City. I think it's going to be a great advert for the Premier League. Now, um, it, it's, 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 a fa- it's a fascinating um, plot, I think. Tata Martino against Pellegrini. You know, obviously two South American managers with different levels of pedigree on uh, on this side of the pond. It'd be really interesting to see what condition Messi is in when this, this tie rolls around. Presumably he's back. Um, from the city end, this is what they wanted. Bayern Munich versus Arsenal. Uh, we saw this last year. I said, I am not one of those people who believes that Bayern are, are unbeatable. I think the uh, Dante Boateng central partnership has issues. I think Neuer doesn't make many mistakes, but when he does make mistakes, they're absolute howlers. Having Lahm in front of the back four continues to befuddle me because it means Rafinha playing. I think most of all, I think Arsenal match up well. And I think maybe, you know, having won there last season, albeit in different circumstances and, and whatnot, I think might remove some of the um, some of the psychological blocks that are out there. Galatasaray versus Chelsea. Ha! Roberto Mancini against Jose Mourinho again. I love it. I love it. Um, I, I, I'm actually really, really excited uh, for this. And, of course, Didier Drogba uh, coming, back, uh, coming back to Chelsea. You expect Chelsea to be a slightly different team after, after January. I don't think we've seen the best of Chelsea at all. Galatasaray, kind of a hook or crook situation thus far. But, um, you know, they have legitimate match winners in Borac Yilmaz and Snyder and, and, and Drogba. And when you have that, um, you know, you're always in it. And the final game with the English teams is Olympiakos versus Manchester United. On paper, you know, the, the, the gods are smiling on, on Davy Moyes because um, I don't think Olympiakos are... It's very difficult for them to compete uh, at this stage. I thought they were quite lucky uh, as well. And uh, they were level on, uh, on, on points with, uh, with Benfica. Uh, the last time around and some slightly questionable um, decisions. And the other four games featuring the, featuring the non-English clubs are Zenit St. Petersburg versus Borussia Dortmund. I think that's a, that, that's a really good draw for, for Zenit given the circumstances. Borussia Dortmund will be better uh, when they get back. They'll have more of their injured guys back and they'll presumably be out of the running in the Bundesliga. However, um, I think Zenit are actually a team that match up very well with uh, Klopp. Schalke Nulfia versus Real Madrid, the Raul Derby. I think Schalke are, are a beatable team. I, I think they, they've been up and down. Obviously, they had a horrible start to the season, got back together. Hontelar's out. Uh, but, you know, I, I think Ancelotti will be very happy with this. Bayer Leverkusen versus Paris Saint-Germain. Again, I think a good do- draw for PSG. I, I think Leverkusen, and I know you went to see Sami Hippia earlier this year, um, I think Leverkusen have kind of done it with smoke and mirrors thus far. They have a ridiculous record in the Bundesliga. I think it's, um, it's the second best ever 
uh, or third best ever uh, after Bayern Munich this year because they're second to them at the table and Bayern Munich last year when they sent the points record. Um, the center can't hold. They can't keep playing at that level and PSG match up very well with them. And AC Milan against Atletico Madrid. Uh, Atletico Madrid, supposedly the team everybody wanted. They're, I, I think, Atletico are being disrespected um, somewhat um, as we speak. They're top of the Bundesliga. Uh, same goal there. Sorry, top of the Bundesliga. That would be impressive. That would be amazing. Um, top of La Liga. Uh, same points total as uh, and same goal difference as uh, as Barcelona. You know, that said, if you're Milan, this Milan side, you're kind of picking your poison. But, you know, by the time this game rolls around again, maybe Milan will be more settled and uh, and I think they'll fancy their chances. By the same token, though, it works both ways. If you're Atletico Madrid, you know, you'd much rather be playing Milan than Arsenal. That's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to Rory K. Smith. Great to have him back in the studio. Tony Barrett. And, of course, from the great Northeast, it's George Colkin. Don't forget, you can see all the goals and the rest of the highlights from every Premier League game before anyone else simply by downloading the Times app to your smartphone. Till next time, bye-bye. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away.